Well, last week we took a short break from our series in the book of James as um, I was gone over the weekend and uh, one of my friends uh, came and preached on Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16, which was a challenge for us to live as salt and light and to have our actions demonstrate that we really have a life with Jesus. Well, in many ways, that's a parallel section, the Sermon on the Mount, with the whole book of James. Uh, but this morning, particularly, as I was thinking about the passage we're going to be looking at, this is one of those passages in which you, you want people to know right up front, it's, it's not the typical passage in which people come maybe looking to churches that they want a word of encouragement or a, a word of hope, or they're, they're looking for some, something that will kind of lift them up uh, for the week to come. It, it, it's not a, a, a passage in which you're going to look for, for God's comfort, uh, but it's a, it's a passage in which you're going to look for God's challenge for your life. And as we think about it, there are places in God's Word which are, are filled with, with words, magnificent words, describing the nature of God, um, what He has done in our lives as it, as, it, as it flows from having a personal relationship with Him. But there are other passages that are filled with warning. Uh, the Bible, as some say, can either do one of two things when you hear it. it either it will comfort you. And the Bible says it will comfort the afflicted, or some have said it will comfort the, aff- the afflicted or afflict the comfortable. And so this is one of those passages in which it, it's all about warning. And it's true not only in the passage we're going to look at, but also in just a multitude of passages in God's Word that, that really cause people to think about what you think is really happening in your life as it, rela- as it relates to the living God. Uh, for instance, John the Baptist, who Jesus says at that point was the greatest man who had ever lived, um, except for those of people who are now going to be in the kingdom of God as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. But uh, as John the Baptist came on the scene, and if you know anything about what happened in the New Testament, is that, that John the Baptist was, was commissioned to pave the way for Jesus. In many ways, the way he paved the way was to get for people to seriously look at their own lives so that when Jesus came, they were ready for hope. They were ready for the message that would drive them into a real relationship with the living God. And so John's baptism was, was called a, a baptism of repentance, a, a baptism that would prepare people for the one who was coming. Now, he had a rather successful ministry, um, even though he was kind of dressed a little bit differently than anybody else. In, in Matthew chapter 3, it says, Now he himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And so you might say, well, maybe people just came out to take a look at him. I mean, he was kind of strange looking. But really, if you knew what he was saying, you wouldn't just come up to look at him. You'd, you'd have to respond to what he was doing. And it says in verse 5 in Matthew chapter 3, Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so they were making a public statement in response to what he had to say. In fact, contextually, it also said this was happening as they were getting baptized, and they confessed their sins. I was just thinking about this. If, if, if our baptism was more like John the Baptist, when, when we would bring someone into a baptismal pool like we have in our church, or you were taking some other place, before you would dunk them, you'd say, well, could you just name a few of the sins that you normally commit so everybody can hear about it? <laughs> you know, that's what they were doing there. In fact, we, we, were, we want people to know we're really honest about why we came out here. We need what's coming. We need to hear about the one who is coming to deal with our sins. But what's interesting to me is his response to some of the people who came out. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees 
coming for baptism. So they were coming out to, to do a religious thing. You know, baptism is not something you do every day in, in, in the world. In fact, I don't think anybody gets baptized, particularly in the world. But they were coming out to be baptized. And he said to them, you brood of vipers. So basically what he said, you're a bunch of snakes, you know, just withering in the grass, okay? And he goes on, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What makes you think just by coming out here and doing a religious ritual that it means anything? And we baptize people and we think it's significant, but if all it is is an external ceremony, it means nothing. He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father. Don't you know our spiritual legacy? For I say to you that from the stones of God is able to raise up children of Abraham. You can take those little pebbles on the ground, those rocks, those stones, and they could be more pliable in the hands of God than your hearts, which are stone cold. So the warning of John was you need to make sure that what you're doing on the outside really reflects what's on truly on the inside. And that's really what James does to the, the church that is reading his words um, in that first century. So if you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2. Um, most of the texts are in your Bible, uh, in your outline this morning, but I left the main text uh, for your own uh, Bible so you could look at that and we'll look at some other things as well. But what I want to begin with before I even go further is we're going to talk about faith, but we're going to talk about faith in two different ways. There's a, there's a true faith and there's a false faith. There, there's a genuine faith and a faith that's just hypocritical. But faith is crucial. It, it, is, it is essential. But faith, a false faith, can be deceptive. Warren Wearsby says this about the importance of faith. That's in your outline this morning. He says, faith is a key doctrine. Some people would say the key doctrine, but there's so many key doctrines, so how do you rate them? Uh, in the Christian life, for instance, the sinner is saved by faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and the believer must walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and without faith it is impossible to please God. And hopefully come in a place like this, you know, I, I hope that coming here pleases God. Well, unless it's done by faith, true faith, it's not going to please Him. And whatever we do apart from faith is sin. So faith is pretty important. Someone has said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of consequence. Now, what does he mean by that? When you read Hebrews 11, which is the Hall of Fame or Hall of Faith passage, but you find you meet men and women who acted on God's Word no matter what price they had to pay. Faith is not some kind of nebulous feeling that we work up. Faith is confidence that God's word is true and conviction that acting on that word will bring his blessing. So really what he's saying here, you need to understand that faith is not conjuring up some kind of feeling that makes you um, experience some emotional response to your concept of who God is and you think because you're emotionally charged, that pleases God. You know, feeling good about God is not what he's calling us to do and to be. Most of you know that last weekend, um, Alice and I had the you know, awesome time of celebrating the, the marriage of our daughter to a, a great guy. And we participated in the ceremony in a variety of different ways. And it was just so fun, and it was so... 
Uh, it was so exhilarating to be a part of that. But it's interesting, I've done a lot of marriage ceremonies. When you, when you think about the marriage ceremony, it's a great illustration of what it means to have a, a connection with God based on a, a faith commitment. Because when you, the two people come up in front of a pastor or the officiant of uh, the ceremony, th- there's one thing that's absent in the vows or the, the ceremony. And apart from the personal things that were said during the, the ceremony, I asked them, I said, do you want to write your own vows? Do you want the traditional vows, the traditional even I do vows and I will vows? And I said, no, this make it really traditional. And, and what happens in that ceremony is not one time that I ask them, well, how, how do you feel about each other? Are, 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 you, are you emotionally connected in a meaningful way? Not, not once did I say that. But what I asked them, will you do this? Will you will this? And is your commitment a commitment that is all in? You know, you look at the traditional vows. You say, you know, I commit myself in sickness and in health. I just forgot the rest of the vows, you know. <laughs> Till death do us part. Oh, for better or for worse. And you're thinking, I, I better be sure that I believe this person is the person I want to live the rest of my life with, right? Because I'm just, I'm just committing myself, not in a feeling level. I, I commit myself that I will feel nice thoughts about you the rest of my life. That, that's not what's in there. You're committing yourself to that other person, sickness and health, for better or for worse. And then how long till death do us part? That's the kind of commitment, that's the kind of faith that Jesus asked of anyone who decided to be one of his disciples. You know, time does not allow us to go through passage of passage that illustrates that. You know, one of the favorite, illustra- one of the favorite miracles of Jesus, I'm, I'm sure among the crowd was, is when he fed them. You know, I don't know about you, but anything that's good that I can get for free, I'm, I'm all in, right? I'm all in. You know, it was a free lunch. And not only for you, but your entire family. That, that might have saved you an entire day's wage. And, and it says in the text in John chapter 6 particularly that the people believed in Jesus. Why wouldn't you believe him? He just fed you. But then he went on and said, I want you to understand, we're not start talking about a free lunch if you're going to follow me. In John 6, he, he says this to them. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and the reason Jesus says truly, truly doesn't mean when he doesn't say truly, truly, he's not saying, speaking the truth, but he said, I'm about to say something you're going to have a hard time believing. And when he says it twice, he says, you're really going to have a hard time believing this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. And then he says, okay, now there's a, there's a benefit to this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. And you can take that very simply, is that if you don't eat my flesh and you don't drink my blood, you will not have eternal life the rest of your days. So, so Jesus is, is raising up the value of genuine faith. Not just, I, can, I believe you can do a miracle. 
I mean, they saw that. They weren't even walking by sight then. They just saw it before them. But I trust in you enough that I will follow you. And in fact, that's actually Jesus' favorite invitation. His faith, he would talk about faith. He would talk about trust. He would talk about belief. But 32 times he said, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Because he knew if people followed him, that was true faith. And it says after, after he fed the 5,000, talked about eating flesh, drinking blood, they left him. And he turned to his disciples and said, well, now what are you going to do? Now, they had experienced Jesus enough, and they had followed him and said, where else would we go? That's when we come to that place where we know we have genuine faith because we don't see any other option. That we're all in because Jesus is all in. One acronym or acrostic, depending on how you want to look at the word, uh, faith. It's for, faith is forsaking all, I trust him. And isn't that what happens in a marriage ceremony? You know, when you know, Cindy and Scott you know, were up in front of me. You know, what, what were they saying to not only everybody there, but if everyone was... Oh, and i got to say this right up front because, you know, we had an awesome week, but there was part of the ceremony that I, I was frustrated with because I couldn't invite everybody. Okay, so um, in, in, case, in case you wonder, uh, I had no input on the, on the invite list, zero, okay? All I was responsible to do was to pay for it, okay? I didn't, I didn't get the chance to say who got to come or not come. And really it was frustrating because, you know, serving in three churches, one as a youth pastor and, and two as a senior pastor and even a local church that I grew up in being really... There were tons of people that I, that I know so well that I could not invite. And so that was the only, it was in, and even Cindy could not invite everybody that she wanted to invite because it was in a, you know, setting which it was limited. Uh, but as we think about God's invitation, his invitation is for everybody. It's straightforward, it's clear, it's simple, but it's not easy. And, and what I was saying in terms of that ceremony, when when they went through their vows, what they were saying is not only who they were committing to, but who they were not committing to. Cindy was saying, of all the men that are, that are populating this planet, I don't want any of them. I want you. And, and when Scott was looking at Cindy and made the vows to her, of all the women that are on this planet, I don't want any of them. I want you. And, and when we make a commitment to Jesus, of all the things and people and Religious things that people follow after, I'm forsaking all of them and I'm putting my trust in you. And this is a commitment that I'm committing to you no matter what happens next. And Jesus said that he, he's, he came to give quantity of life, eternal life, but he also said quality of life, abundant life, but he never said it was going to be easy. And so even when we say to Jesus, you know, I'm committing myself to you, in sickness and in health. Did some Christians in the first century that followed Jesus, did they ever get sick? Of course they did. did. Did some of them, you know, die for their faith? Of course they did. Did some things, in some ways, on a human level, their life got worse rather than better? At least physically, it did. But they were all in. They were trusting completely and fully and completely in Him. And, and that's where... That's where we need to understand that faith, genuine faith, is, is what it's all about. 
And in James, what he is saying, I want you to understand how you can look at your life objectively and know whether you got it or not. I don't want you to be like those Pharisees and Sadducees that came out to John the Baptist and said, yeah, we'll get dunked in the water. And he said, look, I know what your heart is. You're far from God. You don't want to forsake what you are holding on to, your, your own um, obedience to the law, not only in the Word, but what you've added to it. You don't want to, you don't want to fully commit yourself to the one who's coming. And, and we need to recognize that God looks at our life. He knows whether we really trust in Him. And so basically what this message is about is to say, well, how can we not be deceived into thinking that we have a faith, but it's, it's not a true faith, it's a false faith? Well, really our memory verse for the month kind of summarizes that. In James 1.22 it says, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This week as I was in small groups, some people said, what does the word delude mean? Well, it means be deluded. That sounds like something you get out of Webster. It means having delusions. Well, simply, what do you mean? It means being deceived. Some people believe that it's, as long as you hear about Jesus, as long as you go to places where people talk about Jesus, like churches, as long as you do a few religious things like take communion or get baptized, that's enough. Well, those can be all things God wants us to do, but if that's all it is, a few religious rituals, and there's been no changes made by God in our life because we know Him and relate with Him, then our faith is false. Or or to put in the words of of James, there's two types of faith that won't measure up to God in the end. It's a dead faith and a demonic faith. And you say, well, I'm sure I don't have a demonic faith. Well, you'll see that we might because it's a faith like a demon or a faith like a dead person. And you'll see very simply what a person's faith looks like if they're dead and what a person's faith looks like if it's like a demon's faith. Well, let's see it this morning. Don't be deceived. First of all, there is a faith. It's a dead faith. James chapter uh, 2, beginning at verse 14. James writes this very plainly. He's warning now. This is one of those warning passages. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And implied in that question, rhetorical question, is no, that kind of faith cannot save him. And he said, well, let me illustrate it. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, for some of you who are familiar with the Bible or even familiar with what the, the gospel is, you're saying, well, that, isn't, that doesn't make sense because I thought the Apostle Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith and, and that not of works, lest anyone should boast. Or in Romans chapter 4 where he talks about Abraham, he said, well, you know, Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteous before he did any work. Before he was circumcised, before he went in through any religious ritual or anything else, he just simply put his trust in God and followed him. And and, and so with this, you need to understand, there's a difference what Paul is saying and what James is saying. Paul is talking about like pre-conversion or pre-before becoming a Christian. 
And what he is saying is you stand before God as you try to connect with God. You need to understand there is nothing you can do to merit God accepting you into his family. There's nothing you can do. Impossible. In one sense, you could take, again, this is the birth analogy. What did you do to be born in the family that you were born into? And the answer is what? Nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not only you didn't have enough good things to be able to do, you were incapable of doing good things because you hadn't been born yet, right? And what he's saying here, Paul is saying, look, you, there's nothing you can do. You're incapable, and even if you were capable, you wouldn't be able to do it well enough to be able to please God to the point where you said, okay, you're, you're so good, I'll bring you into my family. It's incapable. There's nothing we can do to merit God. But what James is talking about is not before you become a child of his, is what happens afterwards, the post-conversion. Well, how do you know that your faith is the true faith that bring you, brings you into God's family? And he's saying, well, it's a faith that will demonstrate that you have come into relationship with him. In many ways, in the birth family, you can know whether you're part of a family because how they relate to you and how you relate to them, right? If there's no relationship, people say, are you really part of that family? And what he is saying here, how do you know you're really part of God's family? It will show in how you live. You do nothing to merit your relationship with God, but after you become part of God's family, you do everything you can to live it out. And that's what he's saying. If you connect with God, the God who changes everything, the Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creature. Well, you can't be a, a true Christian unless you're a new creature. doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that what God has done in your life, it, it shows. It shows. And Jesus really said the same thing. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. If you really know me, it's not just lip service. It will show an action. And you, when you see people in need, you'll be a person who says, I, I need to help because God helped me. I want to help somebody else. Galatians 6.10 says the same thing. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. We, we care about each other because that's how God now has remade us. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, again, the same thing. But whoever does, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. It will show itself in action. A couple phrases. A workless faith is a worthless faith. If, if, if there's, no, there's no lifestyle change, if there's nothing that God has done in your life, you have to question, did, did you really know him? Did you really connect him? Warren Wiersbe writes this way, by faith you receive the life, and by faith you reveal the life. And, and so it's an aspect, once you get it, there's, it's going to demonstrate in your, in your life. So, so what's, what's the point here? Uh, the point is, is you cannot encounter Jesus and it make a difference. Now, we're, we're talking about direction, uh, not perfection. Um, that there will be, you can't, as someone said, you, you can't put your finger in a, a socket and not have something happen to you, right? If the current's going. And, and you can't encounter Jesus and nothing ever happens. 
I saw Etta, and you might have seen Etta, those who know our children's director, and she's, she's got a, a collar on around her neck. If you haven't seen it, you'll see this huge collar. And I, I guess on Thursday, she woke up and she, could, she couldn't move her neck, you know, just like, like this. You ever had that experience? Maybe you mess up your back, or you mess, and you just, you're just in excruciating pain. And um, since I had the gift of mercy, when I saw her this morning, I said, oh, you're making a fashion statement. You got the big, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not making a fashion statement. I, I messed up my neck. I said, well, how did it happen? I said, well, I, I really haven't done anything, but two weeks ago, I was in a car crash. And, you know, sometimes that happens with people, too, who, who come in a relationship with God. They, they come in a relationship with God, immediately you don't see a whole lot of change, but if you watch over time, all of a sudden, things begin to change. And it took two weeks for her to get the repercussions of being in a whiplash environment. And sometimes we wonder about the, the, the speed of change in someone's life. And we're not, we're not to be the person who goes around saying, you're saved, you're not saved. But there is a warning here for us and our loved ones. If God makes no difference in your life, there's a red flag there. Because faith without works, it's it's dead. Now, if, if, when, a, when a person dies, and, and you, you, could, you could talk to them, you could talk about all the kind of experiences they might have had, but you say, well, you show it right now? Well, you show it right now? Well, they can't, because why? Because they're, they're dead. And, and what he's saying here, if, if you have a faith that's dead, it's because it's not showing anything for people to see. So you can have a dead faith. Secondly, you can have a, a demonic faith. And we'll look at that real quickly. He goes on and says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe. You know, a faith like a demon, or even a dead faith for that matter, you can have some intellectual assent, or you can agree with certain facts in the Bible. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe that Jesus has the ability to forgive everybody of their sins, that they put their trust in him. If you just say all those things, but that's it, well, that's good. That's like a demon. They believe that. They believe in monotheism. I believe that God is one. They don't believe in many gods. They know there's only one true God. They also have a pretty good Christology. Look at, look at Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 11, I have in your outline. He says, Whoever, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, this is Jesus, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. They knew Jesus was part of the Trinity. They knew that Jesus was the Savior. They knew Jesus was fully God. They had the Christology right. They had their theology proper right. They believe in monotheism like, like the, the Jewish people. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. They also believed in that God was going to be their judge. Look at Luke 8, 30 and 31. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go into the abyss. They had, they had their theology right, and they also realized that, that Jesus was judge. They were very aware that they, they could be sent into a place of judgment and punishment right at that moment by Jesus himself. But did that kind of faith save the demons? Of course not. Because Jesus called people to put their trust in him, reliance upon him, 
depend upon him, but they required, he required them to follow him. You ever played that uh, follow the leader game? You know, children used to play that, you know, you, you, you know, I'm the leader, and so you do, you jump over logs, or you'd walk on curbs, or you would, you know, go on handlebars, and you just try to get to see who, who could follow you, right? And, and people would take turns doing that. You know, one of the sobering things of playing that game is after you've been playing for a while, it's your turn to lead, and okay, you're leading, and, and you look around, and no one's what? No one's following, right? They quit playing the game. And, and really the reason Jesus said, follow me, when he called people to true faith, because he could know right then, when he looked around to see if they were behind him, if they really trusted him enough to follow his steps. I use this analogy in the first service, and I said something about, you know, what, w- what would you do if I told you to follow me, and I looked around, and you weren't following me, and I said, what happened? They said, well, I- I'm afraid you're going to get lost, right? <laughs> there, there are many reasons why I not necessarily follow me, because I might not get you in the right direction or get you back to where you want to be. And, and your faith would be well-founded not to put your faith in me. But when it comes to Jesus, you have to come to, conclu- to conviction. Do you really believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be? And he's worth following. The demons believe that there's one God. The, the, the demons not only believe intellectually, but they believe emotionally. It says, it says in James chapter the 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The word shudder there, some of your translations might say tremble. It really has the idea of, of living with fear because of your contact with whatever, but in this context, you're, con- you're, con- and you're coming in context with God. The Bible says a lot about the emotion of fear or the response of fear. So without, that, that, that fear is the beginning of knowledge. You, you cannot know God unless you have a healthy fear of God. The demons have a fear of God. They respond to God intellectually and they respond to God emotionally, but that's not enough because they're not willing to, to do what God wants them to do. Reject every other leader in their life. They're, they're following after Lucifer, the evil one. They would have to repent of all that. And anytime anyone comes to faith in Christ, they've got to turn from what the direction they are going and turn to Jesus and follow him. An intellectual response to God is not enough. An emotional response to God is enough. It's a willful commitment to God that's necessary. And last verse this morning. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The word useless there means fruitless. Uh, you know, various times I've told you about a couple of fruit trees I have in my, in my yard. Uh, I've got one orange tree that's 10 years old, another one's 8 years old. And you know what's common to both of them? They bear me no oranges, bear me no fruits. I have... I'm beginning to doubt whether those are really, really, truly fruit-bearing trees. Now, they could be just trees and dormant, and eventually it's going to come to life, or it could be they don't really have the ability to bear fruit. And that's why Jesus said you can't, you can't, you can't pull up the tares with the wheat because the tares and the wheat often look the same. But he does warn people, okay, if your faith is useless or fruitless, you're being foolish, believing that you have genuine faith. I, I threw a few quotes down. 
in Ephesians 2, which is in the scriptures, obviously. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Our faith ought to demonstrate in how we live and who we live for. John Calvin put it this way, It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. It's got to demonstrate in action. Luther said, a faith that saves is a faith that shows. Or you could put it simply this way. Genuine faith will stop you from doing some things and start you doing other things. And, and so that's, that's the question. I, has, has Christ made a difference in my life? That's the only way we can know whether we have true faith. Just going through the motions or even emotions is not enough. Because... Coming to faith in relationship with Christ will change who we are. So what's the question this morning? What's the so what? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have a genuine faith? Or if you were really being honest with you know, my faith is more dead than it is alive. My, my faith is more similar to, to even a demon. I've responded intellectually, I've responded emotionally, but I haven't responded willfully. When he called his disciples, he said, you know, follow me, drop your nets and take a course change because you trust me enough to be the leader, the Lord of your life. Becoming a Christian is like getting married. It's pretty simple. You, you, you know, people, people can go online now and you can become a pastor. You, you just go online enough, you know, push a few buttons and, and they'll give you the ability to, to do a marriage ceremony. It's pretty simple. And then he, whatever credential you have, you can get them up there and you say a few words and their marriage sign, you know, get a few people sign a document. It's done. Getting married is pretty simple. But living in a marriage is pretty hard, isn't it? It's not easy. It, any marriage that works, the people in the marriage are what? They're working at it, right? So the Christian life is simple. It's simply saying, I give my life fully and completely to Jesus. Come to my life. Forgive me my sins. I want to follow you. It's simple. But it's not going to be easy. We don't do anything to merit it, but we do everything to live it. And that's what James is pleading with them to understand. It's simple, but it's not easy. Give your all to the one who gave his all you. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, this, this challenges anybody, no matter where they are in their journey with God. Because there are times we all can play games with you. And sometimes it's at the beginning, starting point of that relationship where we, we just want to give a, a nod to God and we think that's enough. And he said, no, it's, it's all about giving me everything. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that hasn't come to that place where they've given their all to you in a, in a saving step of saying, Jesus, be my Lord, be the leader of my life. I want you to forgive all my sins. I want to follow you, that they do it today. And for all of us who know you, might we never be satisfied with simply giving kind of a half effort to, to be just one involved in religious activity, but help us desire to put you first, 
to give everything we have to the one who gives everything to us. Help us to live, uh, not just on Sundays, but every day, just desiring to please you by doing those things which honor you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we sing this morning, and we invite you, if you